Good to see you, friends, here at the EU. For those of you I haven't met yet, my name's Rowan Kemp. Come down and introduce yourself after this meeting. I'd love to get to know you and meet you. I work here with the EU as the staff team leader. Well, what time is it? A few people looking over at the clock on the wall. That's very good. I haven't worn a watch for quite a few years now, and so often I find myself in moments where I have to ask that question. What time is it? Of course, I often get the standard joke response. What time is it? Time to get a watch. Of course, I get that all the time. But that question, what time is it, is a very important question. It's actually one of the most important questions that we face as a society, as a nation, as individuals, as a human race. What time is it? It goes to the very heart of how we see the world, how we understand it. It brings to light what we think is really important, what really matters. What time is it? See, maybe it's time for revolution. Maybe it's time for restructuring. Maybe it's time for facing facts. Time to do something, to make poverty history, to arrest global warming. Maybe it's time for a change. Maybe it's time for a new approach. Maybe it's time for a new theory. Frankly, maybe it's time just to put your feet up and have a rest. What time is it? What is the era or the age in which we live? Jesus of Nazareth came saying that we are in a new age. He came introducing a new era. He had a truly radical answer to that question of what time it was. And the new age that he was introducing, well, that impacts upon you and me, even here at Sydney Uni today. We're going to be exploring today Jesus' New Age movement. So I'd love it if you could uh, open a Bible, if you brought one with you today, to John chapter 1. Maybe open up the outline you received. It would be helpful to take some notes, help you to concentrate. If you don't have a Bible or you'd like to get hold of one, please come down and see Ryan afterwards, and we'll love to make sure that you've got a Bible so that when you come along to the EU, you can look at the Word of God with us. So as we now reflect upon God's Word, let me lead us in a prayer and ask him to speak to us today as he's promised. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you did send the Lord Jesus into this world, that we might know the truth and that that truth might set us free. We pray that as we reflect together upon it today, that you might grant us your spirit so that we might understand it and that we might lead lives as a result of this that please you. And we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, if you were here last week, you'll know that we looked at the opening verses in John's Gospel, the profound, the awesome, the thrilling start to John's account of Jesus' ministry. John painted Jesus into an eternal, a universal frame. It was, I suggested, John's answer to the big question, what was the one true God doing in this Jesus of Nazareth? And the profound, awesome and thrilling answer that we saw last week was that the eternal word of God, God the one-of-a-kind Son, became flesh as the ultimate and definitive revelation of God himself. And he did that so that we, so that you and I, might place our faith in Jesus the Christ and thereby receive what we could never earn ourselves, that we might receive the right to become children of God. That was the big picture 
the summary of what God was doing in Jesus from last week. So having set out the summary, John the Apostle launches into his presentation of Jesus' ministry. And as you can see there on the outline, I've called this opening section of John's account of Jesus' life, death and resurrection a paradigmatic week. A paradigmatic week. A paradigm it just means a model for understanding. We have paradigms for interpreting literature, models for how we understand literature, paradigms in physics or other sciences for how the world works, paradigms for understanding the economy, paradigms for understanding social behaviour. A paradigm is just a model for understanding. What I'm saying that John, the writer, is doing here is he's setting out a model for understanding Jesus' ministry. And a model for understanding all that he's going to tell us in the rest of the book. So if you want to know how to read John's Gospel, you've got to get this first week of Jesus' ministry under your belt and grasp the paradigm, the model that John is setting forward. So what we're going to do is we're going to look at this first week that John lays out and then we're going to step back after we've moved through the week and just reflect on a few key questions of what we've learned from this. So let's look at day one. And I've got some, some headings next to the days there on your outline. I've changed some of them on the way through, so I'll tell you what I think they ought to be each time we come to a day. So day one starts there at verse 19, and I really think what we learn here is the question. That's what we learn from day one, the question. And the question is, who is the Christ? That's what day one tries to teach us. So let me start reading day one. John chapter 1, verse 19. You might like to follow along with me. I'm reading from the New International Version. Now this was John's, that's John the Baptist, this was John's testimony when the Jews of Jerusalem sent priests and Levites to ask him who he was. He did not fail to confess, but confessed freely, I am not the Christ. Now, we've already been introduced to John the Baptist back in chapter 1, verses 6 to 8, verse 15. We've met this guy. But it's a very unusual way to start, though, isn't it? They've come asking who he is, and he responds with a denial. He starts with a negative. Well, I'll tell you who I am. I'm not the Christ. You know what, what that does as we read it? Straight away, it actually directs our attention away from John the Baptist and onto the Christ. Straight away, our attention is diverted onto this Christ figure. Now, a key expectation amongst the Jews of Jesus' day, the Jews of the first century, was that this Christ would come one day. Now, Christ is a Greek word, and it's the same as a Hebrew word, Messiah, exactly the same, just different languages. So Christ, Greek, equals Messiah. Hebrew equals what in English? It equals the Anointed One. So Christ is a title. It's the anointed one. Someone marked out by God for a special role or ministry. There's three different groups of people who were anointed, who were Christ's in the Old Testament. First of all, kings of Israel. The kings were anointed. So you can jot this down and look it up later. 2 Samuel chapter 1 verse 14. The king of Israel is called the Lord's anointed one, the Lord's Christ or Messiah. So the kings of Israel were Christ's. But also the high priest in Israel was anointed, was a type of Christ. You can see that in Leviticus 4 verse 3. So you've got kings, you've got priests, and also prophets in the Old Testament 
were anointed. So you can see Elisha the prophet being anointed in 1 Kings 19 verse 16. So in a way there's lots of Christs with a small C in Israel's history. Lots of kings and priests and prophets sent by God for particular roles and ministries. But see there are also promises in the Old Testament that one day God would send the Christ, capital C. He would send the ultimate, the definitive, the permanent Christ, the chosen one of God. Some, some key passages you can look up there are 2 Samuel chapter 7 or Ezekiel 37, which talks about a king who would come from David's line who would rule forever, rule permanently over God's people. Not just for 20, 30, 50 years, but forever. The Christ, the anointed one, would come and rule forever. Or you can go and look up Deuteronomy 18 where Moses talks about a new prophet that God would send. That's the expectation, see, that God would raise up the Christ, the anointed one. And what would this Christ do? He would establish God's rule, God's kingdom, permanently. He would bring in a new age of fulfilment where all the promises of God went, yes, they're here, a great age of blessing. That is what the Christ would do when he came. So what was the key question? If you were there in Jesus' day, you were there when John the Baptist was baptising people and calling them to get their lives in alignment with God, the question you would have had is, who is the Christ? When will he come? Who is it? Is it that person? Is it John the Baptist? Is it somebody else? But straight away John the Baptist says, no, I am not the Christ. So who then is? And that is the question that drives all of John's story about Jesus. It drives the whole Gospel of John. You've got your Bible open there. Turn with me to the very end of John's Gospel. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. Significant verses only insofar as they particularly tell us John's purpose in writing this book. So it's helpful to have this in mind. John chapter 20, verse 30 and 31. John the Apostle says, Jesus did many other miracle, uh, many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Who is the Christ? The answer is Jesus of Nazareth. And John has written this whole book to convince you today, the reader, that Jesus is the Christ, not anyone else. A couple of years ago, a Sydney radio station had a competition. You know how they had competitions to try to get you to listen to their station more, more often and get their ratings up? They had a competition which involved trying to identify the fugitive. Anyone remember that competition? I think it was Triple M. The Triple M fugitive. And there was significant cash prize if you could identify this fugitive. You know, and you didn't know who the fugitive was. Someone somewhere here in Sydney was the fugitive. Maybe you were sitting next to the fugitive in a lecture. Maybe as you pulled up at the lights, the fugitive was crossing in front of you. Maybe as you went to the supermarket, it was the fugitive who was scanning your items. Often you knew something about the fugitive. Maybe you knew the general area in which they might appear or you'd know something about the, what they might do. But see, the problem was you didn't know exactly who it was. 
Well, the situation is, is similar here in your reading John's Gospel. The great question is, who is this Christ figure? This specially chosen, anointed one of God. And John's trying to convince you and me who read it today that Jesus is the one. So day one of this paradigmatic week raises the question that will drive all of John's story about Jesus, his whole writing project. Who is the Christ? And notice here also at day one, John the Baptist leaves everyone a little bit hanging. I mean, we flick to the end, we know the story. And we read the bit at the beginning of chapter one, we know that Jesus is the Christ. But for those who are standing there at the time, John the Baptist leaves them tantalisingly hanging. Notice what he says there in verses 26 and 27. John the Baptist says, I baptise with water, but among you stands one who you do not know. He is the one who comes after me. He's here. It's like if we were back doing the fugitive for Triple M, you'd say, I'll tell you what, the fugitive is in the room today. And you're thinking, $10,000, all I've got to do is pick it. And you'd start frantically looking around, wouldn't you? Well, magnify that a thousand percent. And John the Baptist is saying, we're all waiting for the Christ. He's standing among you. You start looking around, who is he, who is he, who is he? And John says, not me, not me, but he's among you. Do you want to know who it is? Wouldn't you want to know? So it drives you into day two. And day two is the testimony. The testimony. There he is, says John the Baptist. So day two is the testimony. There he is. Day two starts in verse 29. The next day we read there. And one of the tasks that God had given to John the Baptist was to identify this Christ, this chosen one, to all of Israel. He says that there in verse 31. He says, The reason I came baptizing with water was so that he might be revealed to Israel. And so what happens there on day 2, verse 29? The next day John saw Jesus coming towards him and said, Look, The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, this is the one I meant when I said a man who comes after me has surpassed me because he was before me. So day one raised the question, who is the Christ, and left us in the air knowing he was somewhere close among us. But day two is where the identification is made. There he is. This is the Christ. It's Jesus from Nazareth. Now we're going to come back to what John the Baptist says about Jesus after we've got right through the whole week. But day one and day two give us the question and the answer that will drive the whole story. But what happens in day three? Day three, I think the key paradigm we're given, the key theme that's raised for us is responding. Responding. And two words that go with that. Responding is about following and about staying. See, what response should we make to John the Baptist's identification of Jesus as the Christ? Well, read with me verse 35, which is where day three starts. The next day, John the Baptist was there again with two of his disciples. When he saw Jesus passing by, he said, Look, the Lamb of God, which is what he'd said the day before. When the two disciples heard him say this, they followed Jesus. Turning around, Jesus saw them following and asked, What do you want? They said, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? 
Come, he replied, and you will see. So they went and saw where he was staying, and they spent that day with him. It was about the tenth hour. This is, I think, a model, a paradigm for Christian discipleship. This is the right response, the Christian response, to understanding that Jesus' identity is he is the Christ. It has two parts. To respond rightly, you need to follow Jesus and to stay with him. The word stay is sometimes elsewhere translated in John's Gospel as remaining with Jesus or abiding with Jesus. The key here are those two words, to follow and to stay or remain. Now both those words are going to become very key throughout John's Gospel. So you might say to me, look Rowan, it's just a fairly simple little series of events that John the writer is narrating there. You're blowing this up and saying, well, no, look, this is a big model for understanding Christian discipleship. He's just telling us that, you know, hey, they followed Jesus and stayed with him the day. Are you making a mountain out of a molehill? If you're not already asking that question, you should be, because it's very easy to misread the Bible and make too much of sometimes of things that are there, particularly descriptions. So am I making a mountain out of a molehill? Well, I don't think so. Precisely because these two words, to follow and to stay with Jesus, will be developed right through the Gospel. So by the time you get to the very end, you will know that following and staying are key for Christian discipleship. I think what John is doing is introducing them quietly, maybe even subtly here at the beginning. But as we read through, it will be developed. For example, see, to follow Jesus, as we will learn as we go through the story, means to have our life modelled on his. I mean, following and staying are such lovely, concrete images. What does it mean to follow somebody? Well, literally it can mean to follow in their footsteps, but what does it mean here? To follow means to model your life on the one ahead of you. So let's have a look at that. If you've got your Bible there, flick with me to chapter 12, verse 26. And you'll see how this idea of following is developed. Chapter 12, verse 26. Jesus says, Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. If you want to serve Jesus, if you want to be a Christian, a Christian disciple, you need to follow him. It's a key word, a key understanding for what it means to be a disciple. You can also look at uh, John chapter 21 right at the very end where uh, Jesus is talking to Peter and twice he says to Peter, Peter, follow me. Or you can even look back then, uh, chapter 1, down to verse 43 where Jesus says to Philip, follow me. It's a key idea for what it means to be a disciple, that you model your life on Jesus. What about to stay and remain? Well, to stay and remain with Jesus will be developed through the Gospel as a picture of what it means to hold to Jesus' truth or teaching. To stay with him means to hold to his teaching. Look at chapter 8, verse 31, if you've got your Bible there. Chapter 8, verse 31. To the Jews who have believed him, John writes, Jesus said, if you hold to my teaching, literally, if you remain in my teaching, if you stay in my teaching, you are really my disciple. So Jesus himself uses this idea of following and staying to capture what it means to be his disciple. So given the importance of those words, 
Later on in John's account of Jesus' life, I think John is just introducing quietly here a model for understanding what it means to be a disciple of Jesus, what it means to make a right response. It's to follow him, to stay with him. Then what happens in day four? Day four, I think, begins at verse 41. And what's the key theme we're introduced in day four? It's that the eyewitnesses proclaim. That's the key theme we're introduced to in day four. The eyewitnesses proclaim. They say, we have found the Christ. Now, there's no explicit the next day here in verse 41, but I think it is the beginning of a new day because note that when they met up with Jesus on day three, they spent the rest of that day with him. Have a look there in verse 39 of chapter one. I'm reading there. So they went and saw where Jesus was staying and they spent that day with him. It was about the 10th hour. 10th hour, they count from six o'clock in the morning. So the 10th hour is about four o'clock in the afternoon. So at about four o'clock in the afternoon, they meet Jesus or they start following Jesus and they go to where he's staying at four in the afternoon. What we then read in verse uh, 40 is that Andrew was one of these two who went and stayed with him. And verse 41, the first thing Andrew did was to find his brother Simon and tell him we found the Messiah, that is the Christ, and he brought him to Jesus. So did Andrew do this before he went and stayed with Jesus? I mean, he went to follow Jesus at 4 o'clock in the afternoon. Did he run off, say, hold on Jesus, I'll go and get my brother and bring him with me? Or is the text actually saying, which I think it is, on day three, they went and they stayed with Jesus and they, you know, they stayed with him for about four o'clock in the afternoon the rest of that day. The first thing Andrew did the next day, the very first thing was he went and found his brother and said, whoa, you've got to meet this guy we just spent last night with. I mean, he's saying astounding things. We think he's the Christ. I think that's the first thing he did the next day when he found his brother and brought him along. I think this is a paradigm, a model. This is the work of the eyewitnesses. Andrew here is an eyewitness to Jesus. He met Jesus in the flesh. And what does he do? He then goes and testifies about Jesus to somebody else who hasn't met him personally. Andrew proclaims Jesus and he brings Simon Peter, his brother, to him. And this happens several times in this opening week. A bit later on in verse 45, Philip who meets Jesus, goes and finds Nathaniel, who hasn't met Jesus. And it could even be there in verse 43, one way of reading it actually is that Andrew goes and finds Philip as well. It's a bit of a, a model for what the eyewitnesses do. They introduce other people to Jesus. And in fact, John, the apostle, who's writing this book, that's what he's doing, isn't he? Remember what we read back there in uh, chapter 20, verse 30 and 31? He's the eyewitness... And he's saying, I'm writing these things so that you might believe that Jesus is the Christ. That's the work of the eyewitnesses. They testify to this one that they have met. And that's the Lord Jesus. So there we have day one through to day four. We're just going to stop and have a break there for a moment. I just want you to reflect for a moment with me. We've been told that Jesus is the Christ and that the right sort of response is to follow him and to stay with him. How does that sit with you? Well, probably the better way to ask it is, how do you sit with that? See, we are all followers. We are disciples of fashion. Well, some of us are. Obviously, I'm not. Maybe we're disciples of 
particular ideology. Maybe we're disciples of pleasure. We're followers. We're followers of fads, of icons, of fame. We're followers of wealth. Tragically, I think sometimes we're just followers of one another. We sort of run around a little circle chasing each other's tails. So it's worth asking, isn't it, who are you following? See, what we've read already today presents us, as the readers of God's word here, with two challenges. First, if Jesus really is this person, if Jesus really is this Christ, the Christ, capital C, come from God, to establish God's permanent rule and kingdom, to bring in the new age of blessing, then like those two disciples of John the Baptist, we have to leave whoever or whatever we are following, even someone as great as John the Baptist, and start following Jesus. See, the first challenge is to forsake any other master. Whether that master be our career, whether it be success, whether that master be wealth or security or even family, knowing who Jesus is, that he is the Christ, the first challenge is to follow him. But the second challenge is to continue to follow him to stay with him, to remain with him, taking our following of Jesus, not just as a momentary decision, but you're literally following him along. You just keep on walking after him and you stay and you remain with him. Will you, friend, if you call yourself a believer, a follower of Jesus Christ, will you follow him even if it means losing your life? Metaphorically, or literally. Because Jesus says that's what it will involve. To gain your life, you must lose it. Will you follow him through suffering? Will you follow him through suffering, through death, and into glory? Because that is the path that Jesus the Christ walked. Will you continue to follow him? Will you stay with Jesus, not wander off, as it were, to more convenient places to stay? Not wander off, as it were, to an easier bed to lie in. But will you stay with Jesus, hold to his teaching? When those siren voices sing out, Come to me. That's not quite singing, but you get the point. You know? <laughs> stay with us. Disregard Jesus' teaching. Listen to us. When those siren voices of the worldly culture and society and values in which we live, when they cry out to you, will you stay? With Jesus, will you hold to his teaching? Will you be his disciple? Day 5, verse 43. Key theme introduced in day 5 is unbelief, not believing. And a key verse really there is verse 46 where Nathaniel says, Can anything good come from Nazareth? See, Nathaniel is someone who hears about Jesus from an eyewitness. He hears about it from Philip in verse 45. But Nathaniel doesn't believe, straight away anyway. He's more incredulous than convinced. And this introduces another key theme of John's account of Jesus' life, that hearing the proclamation about Jesus doesn't always result in following and staying with Jesus. Often it results in unbelief. And that's going to be a key theme developed as we read through. But Nathaniel's unbelief gets transformed into belief. 
Nathaniel 2 ends up uh, confessing that Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel, in verse 49. And so it's a good question to ask, what moves Nathaniel from unbelief to belief? And the answer is, he witnesses a very unusual act of Jesus. In Nathaniel's case, Jesus reveals that he saw Nathaniel. He says, I saw you when you were under the fig tree. Before we'd ever met, I had a vision, if you like, of you. And I can tell certain things about you. Now that freaks Nathaniel right out. He's going, my goodness, you you must be the son of God, the king of Israel. You must be the Christ. He witnesses an unusual act of Jesus and it transforms unbelief into belief. But that theme where unbelief is turned into belief through witnessing an unusual act of Jesus, that's going to be developed as we get now to the final day of the paradigmatic week. He's going to, and Jesus indicates as much in verses 50 and 51. So at the end of day five, let's just see what Jesus says here to Nathaniel. He says, you believe because I told you I saw you under the fig tree, but you shall see greater things than that. What are the greater things that Nathaniel's going to see? Jesus then added, I tell you the truth. You shall see heaven opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man. Now that's a reference back to something that happened in the Old Testament back in Genesis chapter 28, happened to a guy whose name was Jacob. Jacob was asleep and and the Lord gave him a vision and he could see heaven open and he could see a huge staircase, if you like, running from heaven down to him. It rested on him. And he could see angels of God going up and down this staircase. What was that vision about? Well, I think that vision was about God confirming to Jacob that Jacob was chosen. He was a chosen one who would inherit the great promises of his forefather Abraham. That's what I think God was doing. And so what's Jesus saying here? Jesus is saying, I'll tell you the greater thing you'll see, Nathaniel. You will see heaven opened and you will see angels of God ascending and descending on the Son of Man, on me. So what's he saying? I think he's saying, you will see divine confirmation of my chosen status. That's what you will see. You will see divine confirmation of my chosen status. That's what you are about to witness. And that's exactly then what happens on day seven. Day seven is the climax of the whole week. Uh, Day seven starts there in chapter two, verse one, on the third day. Now remember, we're up to day five, and they count inclusively. So what's the third day after day five? Well, day five, day six, day seven. That's why I call this Day 7. And really what's the theme introduced here? The theme is believing through the signs. This is the key theme for John's Gospel that's introduced here, believing through the signs. Here we have the climax of this paradigmatic week. Jesus does a miracle. He turns water into wine. Not just a bit of water. He turns somewhere between five and 700 litres of water into wine. This is a big miracle, but it's done quietly. That is, the only ones who really end up understanding what's happened are the disciples. So it's a private miracle done for the disciples. Remember what Jesus said to Nathaniel? You will see heaven open. You will get divine confirmation. And here it is, two days later, or three days if you count the same way they do. Here is the divine confirmation that Jesus is the Christ. And so it says there in verse 11, Jesus thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. In this miracle, 
Like in all the miracles that are going to come in the rest of the book, Jesus reveals his glory. Last week we said glory is like his supreme magnificence. His supreme magnificence as of a father's one-of-a-kind son from chapter 1, verse 14. And the right sort of response to that divine confirmation, well, put your faith in Jesus, put your trust in him, believe in his name. And that again is the paradigm, the model that's going to be replay all the way through John's account, isn't it? We're going to see lots of different signs, miracles that Jesus does. In fact, that's what John said right at the end, chapter 20. Remember, he said Jesus did many other miraculous signs. He did heaps of them. But I've just recorded these ones so that you might believe. See? Belief through the signs. Belief through witnessing or hearing about the signs. Now we're going to find out more about what it means to believe because of the signs. Sometimes believing on the basis of signs is a bit dodgy and we'll see that sometimes. But Jesus frankly says, look, if you don't believe what I say to you, at least believe that I am the Christ based on the signs that I'm doing. So there's that first week, a paradigmatic week that sets up so much of what's to come. So just as we conclude, we're going to step back and just ask two questions. Two questions from this great first week that John lays out for us. Two questions are simple questions, but they're very important. First of all, who then is Jesus? And secondly, what did he come to do? Who then is Jesus? Well, have you ever stood under a waterfall? I don't mean behind a waterfall. I mean actually stood under one where the water just on top of your head. It's quite an impressive experience and it's quite effective. You get very wet when you stand under a waterfall. This first week that we just read about is like standing under a waterfall in terms of the question, who is Jesus? It is standing under a waterfall of cascading confessions of who Jesus is. So let me just... just let me pour out the confessions upon you, as it were. Verse 29 from day two. Who is Jesus? He is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I think referring to Isaiah chapter 52 and 53. Verse 33 and 34 of day two. Jesus is the one on whom the Spirit remains, the one who will baptize with the Spirit, the Son of God, from Isaiah chapter 11, verse 1, the one who would come from David's line on whom the Spirit would stay. Day four, he is the Messiah, the Christ. Day five, we found the one that Moses wrote about in the law from Deuteronomy 18. Verse 49, Jesus is the Son of God, the King of Israel. Is a, a series of cascading confessions. And what's the effect of that? The effect is to leave you and me, the reader, in no doubt of who John thinks is. This is the Christ. And those who met him, they were convinced. We're left in no doubt as to Jesus' identity. What did he come to do? What did Jesus come to do? Well, notice there in chapter 2, verse 1, this was the first, actually no, verse 11, we read that this, the turning of water into wine, was the first, or in some senses primary, of all of Jesus' miraculous signs. That is, I think here, in turning water into wine, Jesus is actually telling you and me what he is doing. Let me explain for a moment. See, what he did in turning water into wine, he took six large stone jars filled with five to seven hundred litres of water that were used not for drinking, not for washing the germs off your hands, 
but for ceremonial washing, John tells us. That is, they, these, this watering these jars was used to maintain ceremonial or ritual purity before God. And what Jesus does, he comes and turns this water that was involved in the process of maintaining purity with God and he turns water into wine. Why wine? Well, wine is a great symbol in the Bible for celebration. You can go away later and you might like to look up Amos chapter 9, verse 13 and 14. And it talks about a time when God's people are finally going to be brought out of exile. exile. The great new age when God will bless his people. And what's there? Wine for celebrating. So I think Jesus is telling us something about what he's going to do. He's turning or bringing in the new age of celebration. It's not five or seven hundred litres of water for getting your relationship with God, but it's, it's five or seven hundred litres of wine to celebrate God's great age of blessing that is now coming in. So the first thing I think he tells us is that it's about celebrating. But the second thing I think is maybe even more radical. He's announcing a radical change in the way we worship God. He's announcing a new age because he turns these jars of water that were used for ceremonial purity, ceremonial washing, and he just does away with them. He doesn't go, say, look, I'll just produce a whole lot of wine so we can celebrate. He gets rid of this water and turns it into wine. I think what Jesus is saying there, privately to his disciples, they're the ones who understood it, that there is a radical newness now coming with Jesus coming at the Christ. The old ways are no more. The old ceremonial washing water, you don't need it anymore. In this new age, it's replaced. And that would be a key idea right through John's Gospel is that Jesus in this new age replaces the old ways. Now he's done this privately, but you want to see him really take it to people, read on then what happens in the rest of chapter 2. Because then he suddenly enacts this newness by going to the temple. That's the very next account that John gives us. He does something publicly to proclaim this newness to everybody. He goes to the temple, the very heart of the Jews' relationship with their, with their God. This is where God symbolically dwelt amongst them. This is where the Jews came to him and made their sacrifices to get themselves right with God, to offer them their praise, to offer, them, offer him their worship. And Jesus goes to this temple and what does he do? He drives out all the animals and all the money changers who are cluttering up the outer court. Is this because Jesus is trying to say, look guys, I've got to clean out this court so that the Gentiles, they can pray to God too. And so that... No, he's not cleaning up worship. He's completely radicalising it and he's saying, no, he's turning over the table, I think, in judgement. This whole temple, this whole system is corrupt and gone. Because when they say, how can you do these things here? By what authority? He says, destroy this temple and I will raise it in three days. And John, the writer, says, and you know what? He was talking about his own body. Jesus calls his body the temple. Jesus is saying, this old temple, it's gone, man. I am the temple. I am the meeting place between God and his people. I am the place of sacrifice. And our mind whizzes forward to his death. I am the place where God dwells amongst his people. I am where you worship. 
Jesus is introducing a radical new age. So let's finish. What time is it? I said that yesterday at this point in the talk and someone yelled out, time to get a new watch. I was so glad they'd been listening. <laughs> what time is it? Friends, since the coming of Jesus, God has introduced a completely new age for humanity, for the history of the world. Where now all people from all nations can have a right relationship with the one true God through the God become flesh, through Jesus of Nazareth, the Christ. Now all the blessings of the new age can be poured out on all people. His spirit to all people. Forgiveness to all people. Eternal life to all people. And God is going to establish his rule through this one. That is the age. That is the time in which we live. And what's the right thing to do in this time? Follow him. Forsake all others. Follow him and stay with him. And my prayer, and I hope yours, is that God might give us the strength and the grace to do just that. Amen.